In between the beginning and end of life, there is creation. And in between the beginning and end of creation, there is time for the Forecast Podcast. Welcome. I'm your ever-intrepid host, Sophie O. Okay, I'm here with Annie Eller. Hi, Annie. How do you define yourself? And this can be as straightforward or nonsensical as you want. Um, who am I? I'm a trans femme person who is, you know, I'm a coder cat girl, spend all my day at the computer type. I am a lot of things. I'm a gardener. I like to create digital art in very eclectic ways um not like digital drawings or anything but i like to do cool engineering stuff like motion work and you've told me that you are a scientist uh bioinformatics is what my like training is in i guess i have no idea what that means do you want what does it mean to you i should ask so bioinformatics is I mean, if you break the word down, it's biology, bio, just like natural science. And then you have informatics, which is just kind of a conglomerate in order for them to put information sciences into the same word. So I work on the information of biological systems. So I look at a wide and diverse range of biological data and try and figure out how we can bring all of that together and answer research questions by bringing all of that data together. So most recently, I worked as a computational neuroscientist. What we were doing there was using advanced microscopy techniques, these super advanced microscopes that are called two-photon microscopes. Um, And they are able to isolate a small area of about 100 neurons and record their firing with very little intervention. It just requires us to put this hair, it's about the thickness of a hair, it's called a grin lens, and it goes right into the brain to the neurons that we're trying to record. And we have a lot, all of this precise machinery to get it down to the nanometer when we're placing it inside of the brain of the study animals. And then we're able to stimulate them given certain stimulus. In our case, we, would, we were testing the difference between positive and negative and trying to look at how they would respond differently when given ketamine. So we wanted to we wanted them to develop a chronic stress response so what we would do is we would play a happy tone and then they would get sugar water and then we would play a sad tone and then they would get blown in the face and rodents really don't like being blown in on their face so my job then was to take the recordings as well as the down to the millisecond data of what was happening. Like, was the tone playing? Were they getting sugar water? Was their mouth moving? Was their eye twitching? And try and figure out, like, using all of our different sensors, how to extract as much data as possible and make sense out of that. So 
what we ended up finding was that there is a strong correlation in between facial expression data using facial recognition software and stress response in mice. So mice seem to, you know, express stress. And we were able to find a linkage to a neurological pathway. So we were able to see like when they're neurologically stressed, as well as when a stressful event is happening, they show stress on their face. Now, why is this important? Well, think of when in the future, instead of going to a doctor and having your psychiatrist, let's say, have to make a very educated guess as to what your symptoms might be leaning towards, and instead be able to use a system of computer programs and run a quick MRI on your brain and be able to precisely diagnose you with not just a stress disorder or a neurotic disorder, but be able to diagnose you with a specific, like it is this subtype of neuron in your brain that is causing you to be stressed. And then we can develop drugs that aren't just, you know, serotonin reuptake inhibitors or um, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, your basic SSRIs or SNRIs like Prozac or Wellbutrin, and actually be able to treat you with a antiprotein that can turn off that one receptor inside those one neuron type. And the end goal with that is Ideally, you have no side effects because it's so precise that no other part of your body is affected. Because if you think about right now, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, you have serotonin receptors all over your body. They're everywhere. They regulate digestion. They regulate walking and mobility. They regulate your mood. They regulate a whole, whole long list of bodily functions. And so by taking something like Prozac, you're inadvertently affecting all of those bodily functions. And so by taking an approach like this, ideally, we would be able to circumnavigate all of that, which is a really long-winded kind of example of bioinformatics, which is essentially, you know, taking as much data as possible and trying to synthesize precise medicines out of it. It's a lot of people consider it the new frontier of medicine. So most bioinformaticists work in a field known as precision medicine, which is the, the goal of precision medicine is for doctors to be able to take one blood sample, sequence your DNA, and then be able to give you precise medications that have zero side effects and fix every single ailment that you have based off of your genetic and protein profile. Wow. I'm going to process that for a second because that all sounds really incredible. I'm especially interested, I should say, in um, the idea of like you're being diagnosed not just with general depression or anxiety disorder or what have you. It's just like this is the part of your brain that we're going to work on. I'm, that sounds, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can see why it's being called the new frontier of medicine. 
because stress can come from multiple different parts of your brain. Like when you're stressed, if if you think of your brain kind of like this, you have the amygdala right here and then you have the frontal lobe right here. Stress comes in through the hypothalamus, goes into the amygdala, then goes up into the frontal cortex. Then it comes around. It's going to go to your somatomotor cortex. It's going to go through the a different, I forget what this is, it it touches on like Broca's area, so it affects the way that you speak. And then from, yeah, from the SMA, the sensory motor cortex, it kind of goes everywhere and then it, you know, loops back around. It actually goes into your occipital lobe and changes the way that you process um, visual information. It changes the way that you process sensory information, um, the way that you process sound taste, touch, smells, sight, and then comes back. So when you're diagnosed with anxiety, let's say, it could be anywhere in your brain that is actually causing you to be anxious, any part of this. And so our goal is to be able to say, well, this is, you know, this neuron, this neuron subtype in the amygdala that is causing this type of anxiety, and then treating that instead of treating the entire thing. Because at the end of the day, you might not have a problem back in your occipital lobe or in your prefrontal cortex. So why are we treating that? And a lot of people report on, especially SSRIs and SNRIs, feeling kind of like a zombie, kind of like a shell of who they once were, which is true. I mean, it's literally depressing a large scale of your brain. It's depressing. It's ability to function that's yes that um i'm not gonna say it all makes sense because the way you explain it does make sense but i'm like some of those words i'm like yeah, amygdala i know what that is that's the that's the stress oh, okay so when people talk about stress your amygdala is really important it's what connects the two sides of your brain your two hemispheres it runs right in the middle and then it is where all of your emotions are routed through so if you are feeling an emotion, it goes through the amygdala and then the amygdala is kind of like a traffic controller. It says, okay, like we're having this thought and this is bringing up this emotion and that emotion is in this part of the brain. So if you think of it like uh, um, those people on the tarmac when you're flying with the orange lights navigating the planes that's what the amygdala does and the plane is flying from some part of your brain to an emotion and your amygdala is in charge of directing those flights oh okay that's awesome thank you because i love when people are passionate and this is what i'm here for i want to hear about what people are passionate about and um what were you like as a kid i'm curious to hear i was really weird <laughs> i um am very I am on the neurodivergent spectrum, you could say. Um, and when I was a child, there was a lot of contemplation on, you know, do I have autism? Do I have ADHD? You know, where am I on this kind of continuum of neurodivergent identities? And it was really hard to pin it down. But the reason that they question it, the reason I bring it up is because I was just very eclectic child. I mean, it was really hard to kind of label me and put me in a box. I wasn't a normal kid. I, For starters, my queerness showed up at a very young age. There's one story that my family likes to tell of, well, not my family, my sister likes to tell, of when I was like six or four, four. 
and I came into my sister's room and I was just like begging and pleading for her to show me how to put on makeup because my mom wouldn't show me. And she ended up skipping school and spending the entire day with me playing dress up. And I put on my mom's wedding dress and we did this, that and the other. And it was just so much fun. And ever since then, when I was young, up until I was six, when my sister moved away, my sister and I, we would play dress up with her dolls that she had when she was a kid and my parents would get really upset about it they didn't they didn't like that I like to play with dolls you know girls toys wasn't supposed to be girly and then when my sister moved away that that part of me kind of started to show up in different ways because at the very least I knew that I wasn't the way that people were trying to treat me and So I would find these different outlets, a lot of things that people would kind of describe as weird, especially for a child my age. And I spent a lot of time on the computer. Um, When my sister left, she gave me a computer. And my brother and my cousin were both programmers. And I didn't really like playing the video games that they played. So I found a way to connect with them by learning how to code. And so I started learning how to code at a very young age. And then as I got older, those quirks kind of became more pronounced. And I wasn't like the other kids. I was not really like the bullying type of nerd. Like you wouldn't want to bully me. People didn't really bully me that much. Um, People did pick on me a lot. I was really, really, really religious. And I found a really good outlet in that because... I was able to be very insular inside of the religious community that I had as a child. I was raised Lutheran, but just the way it was structured, I was able to be really kind of in my own space. And that's all I really wanted. And so if religion was where I got that, that's that's where I went. And then getting older, I started to realize things about my identity and then that really caused a lot of dissonance because I always knew I was different. And now here I am realizing these things about my identity. And it caused me to question a lot of, you know, how much of my difference is caused by the difference in my identity and how much of this difference is caused in the difference of my brain. And it actually led me to college all the way, all the way through middle school and high school. I just kind of became more separated, distant, a very distant person, but I was still, I wasn't an outcast. I just was kind of hard to connect with, but I still had friends and stuff, a very small group of friends, but like I was like class president in high school. I wasn't like the super odd kid. I just, you know, it was kind of hard to get to know me, but I wasn't mean. I wasn't, you know, overly weird. I knew how to like you know, interact with people, but I would just keep it very limited. And in college, I kind of had this epiphany. In in my later years of high school, I landed a job as a researcher at the University of Iowa researching lung diseases and the genetic profiles of lung diseases. And I found I discovered my really intense love for science and and data science in particular. I think it was kind of a combination of how my outlet of self-expression from my sister turned into a passion for coding when she left and how my 
kind of social hardships I had as a young child in school uh, resulted in me being very studious, especially when it came to the sciences. I think that those two married together really well when I found my job working as a researcher. And then when I got to college, I sought to use science to answer the question finally of why am I different? Is it my identity or is it my brain? And I ended up studying and writing my undergraduate thesis on the neuroscience of queer identities, studying identity differences and and studying identity differences in the queer population, how those might show up in brain. And that was also really difficult. A lot of people don't like the idea of like a medicalist or a biological definition besides kind of a biological definition has in the past been used as a tool to subjugate a group of individuals and there's already enough subjugation of queer individuals but I still kind of wanted to know like why am I trans what what is different about me what can I point at that can answer this question and is that also the reason that I'm a social outcast or why I find it hard to connect with people. And I wasn't able to necessarily answer either of those questions. However, I did find some really interesting information about all of that stuff. Long story short, you know, trans people are born with brain patterns that are similar to the gender that they identify with and are more similar with the gender that they identify with than with the gender that they were born as. So if you are born male and identify as female, your brain from birth, from exactly 15 hours after you are born, your gender identity solidifies in your brain and your brain actually closer resembles a female brain than a male brain. And so Then I started taking hormones, and that's when I kind of realized that, you know, that was the secret that I was needing to figure out a lot of my social outcastness. And hormones have been a big help. It has allowed me to finally kind of figure out why I'm different without actually having an answer. Obviously, no one needs an answer for why they're different. No one needs to explain themselves, their self, excuse me. But I think it's so fascinating, the connection that I think you mentioned being on the neurodivergent spectrum and you're a trans person and you are, well, I was just thinking, I myself am also on the neurodivergent spectrum and I am um, gender fluid and I was just like, I pretty much everyone I know who is in my close friend group can apply those uh, labels to them, to their self, if not, uh, or at least one or the other. So it's just a pattern I've noticed too. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. I actually had a really interesting conversation with this with my pharmacist. I'm I'm really close with my pharmacist. I'm really close with any medical professional in my life. It's very odd about me, but I love befriending them because um, having worked in medicine myself, I know how isolating it can be. And my pharmacist one day asked me, you know, why do all of my trans patients get mental health medication. Like almost all of them are on an antidepressant or a stimulant or, you know, maybe something more extreme like a mood stabilizer. And my first thing I was like, whoa, 
that's a little transphobic, but also that's maybe against HIPAA regulations. And I was like, that's not good. But then I, I didn't want to just kind of cut her off because I, I asked myself, I was like, you know, that is strange. I haven't met, I haven't met a trans person that doesn't have depression, isn't on stimulants. And then I kind of asked myself, like, why is this? Why, why is that? What, what's different? And the best answer I can come up with is the majority society doesn't require them to, or if people of majority identity aren't required to question why they are the way that they are. And so in that, they aren't required to question differences in the way that their brain operates. And because of that, a lot of them might have these problems. They just go undiagnosed. And I find that also because of that, you know, anxiety and depression diagnoses are much lower in my colloquial or um, experiential kind of understanding. Anxiety and depression is much lower in cis-het communities, especially like white cis-het majority communities. You know, the perfect picture, the upper middle class white cis-het family. But you'll still find a lot of ADHD in those families. And I think that there's been a lot of work done to destigmatize ADHD. I mean, it was originally kind of brought up as this like bad kid diagnosis, but then they found a really effective treatment for it. And so I think that that got rid of a lot of stigma. That's another thing is having effective treatments for medical conditions significantly reduces stigma, significantly reduces stigma. I'm going to ask you one more question. How do you want to be loved next? Like going to the future? I just want to be understood. That's how I want to be loved. I want to be understood. And I want to feel understood. And I think all of that comes down to is I want to be listened to. But more than I want to be listened to, I want to be heard. And I want to be received. And I think that that is... That's how I'm really needing love right now in my life, is to be received wholly without judgment. I like the word received. I like, because it makes me think of taking a whole person and just accepting every single part of them. Yeah. Which is, yeah, no, it's very true, I think. I think it's what we all kind of want deep down. It's like when you get in a relationship with someone, you don't want them to tell you that you're broken. You just want to be received. You might be broken. You might feel broken. We all feel broken. You don't need someone else to tell you you're broken. Like, <laughs> And yeah, I just, I really, I want to be received wholly. There's a lot of weird things about me. And I don't want to keep feeling like those things are a bad thing. I'm fine if they feel weird. I love that they're weird. I love that I'm unique. I love that every human gets the opportunity to be unique. And that was really vulnerable. So thank you so much for for all of this and especially for that last answer because it sounded like that was... I didn't want to pry, but I just... It sounded like it took a lot of emotional gutsy. And I love that. Well, Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you. This was so much fun. I think you, you were the perfect first guest. Thank you for for having me and like for inviting me to do this. This was I I loved this. This was perfect. This was great. This is great. You are great. This was great. I love this. Thank you. And it's just nice to be human with somebody. And so our time together for now is over. Our time together will come again. Now is the time for creation and exploration. The moon rises. The sun sets. I'm Sophie O, and this has been the Forecast Podcast. Thank you.